0: Steven Spielberg loved spectacle. And when you think about his all-out adventure films, like I've been recently been re-watching with some of the Indiana Jones films like that, you know, they're just having fun with it, that the whole movie's like a theme park ride. It's from one adventure to the next. And you see, that's the entertainer side of Spielberg. The more reflective side that I alluded to earlier, and that Marie's also mentioned, is that self-examination, that kind of nostalgia for one's own upbringing and, and so on. There you see the more personal films, the more heartfelt films could be Empire it it could be Schindler's List, it could be uh, The Fablemans, where you really are making a, a more personal project. And The Fablemans will not be one of his big box office films. It's being treated more as, as a sort of showcase film. It's, it's going to open a little wider as if the holidays are upon us, but it's not meant to be, you know, a film playing in every single theater complex and for, you know, a huge audience. It's, it's really, I think, for people who love Spielberg who want to see a more personal film. It's not one of his great big entertainments.
1: Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaber.
0: And I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And today we're going to talk about The Men's and Spoiler Alert, two sort of autobiographical movies. We're going to start off with The Fablemans, which is basically Steven Spielberg's life story, or the story of his childhood and how he got into movies. And it's a wonderfully complex movie that gives you a little bit of film history. Mike, I know you, you had to have had a lot of thoughts about that while you were watching it. So where do you want to dive into The Fablemans?
0: Well, on a personal level, I've met Steven Spielberg a couple times over the years, and my impressions of him on that more personal level... Or that he really does have a reflective quality. I mean, he really has that sort of ponderous uh, capability. I mean, I mean, you know, he's made a variety of films, but he he really can examine his own life and his own feelings. Uh, and secondly, and very closely corresponding, there's that nostalgic urge in Spielberg. You know, in in the movies that overtly go for the family audience, if you will, that he indulges that very successfully over a long career. And what strikes me about The Fablemans is that it's his most overtly autobiographical film. So you have a title character, Sammy Fableman, who's clearly Steven Spielberg, and very much point to point. I mean, if, if we had like three hours for the show, we could go point to point on everything in terms of growing up, where you live, what the family dynamic is and, and so on. But let me sort of cut through all that to my overall reaction to the film which is that it's really extremely well-made as you expect from any Steven Spielberg film. And also though, the fact that not only is he capable of that kind of self-examination, but a kind of self-indulgence sometimes, which I think has mixed results here. For instance, the film is extremely well-made scene by scene. So the early scenes of childhood, and there are two actors playing Sammy. There's a child actor and the later a teenage actor. And you know what, as you're watching the film, there are all these these points of identification, I call them. It's like, ah, well, even if you didn't grow up in that decade, you sort of make the family connections in your own household. And so it's really delightful to watch all that and how carefully observed all of it is. But you know what? The film has a running time of two and a half hours. And for much of the running time, I would say the first half of the film, it really lingers. Now, again, if you showed me a single scene from early in the film and say, it's wonderful, Look look at the set dressing, look at the costumes, watch the actors, on and on, all the things that make for a good film. But in the aggregate, It is really slow moving. And I'm not usually one to complain about a film being too slow because I sometimes like to really settle in that way, but this film really kind of crawls along for a while. There's not much actual story as a narrative tension in the early scenes. It's Spielberg, yes, self-examination, yes, indulging in the nostalgia for his own upbringing, but at a certain point I'm thinking, there's no one to rein him in here. (laughs) I mean, he's totally in control here and the film's gonna run long that way. To its credit, and here's where I think the film really comes together, As there are increasingly tensions within his parents' marriage, uh, and I don't wanna spoil everything in the film, but clearly it's gonna be a troubled marriage. The film gains a lot of dramatic complexity and, and there's a moment in the film where the nascent filmmaker, you know, I'll, I'll, should I call him Steven or Sammy, <laughs> the, the young filmmaker is starting to make those home movies, like the Super 8 home movies, and also looking at, you know, family photographs and, and himself becoming the young Spielberg in the sense of examining his own young life. And when he realizes that perhaps his mother has been unfaithful or would consider being unfaithful to his father, there's a really great scene where he's, he's, the dawn of realization where he realizes this is something wrong within the marriage. You know what, the second half of the film is really, really emotionally quite moving at times because you realize how he's growing up and the family itself is in various ways coming apart. And that's where there's more complexity here. So even though Spielberg always has that tendency to kind of indulge the nostalgia, to wax sentimental, to have the upbeat ending, this sort of obligatory thing. Yeah, those trademarks are there for a family entertainment, but it has more nuance, I would say, more complexity than most similar films. So on balance, I've been recommending this film to everybody because it's so well-made and it's so heartfelt. And you just have to bear with it, have the patience for those early scenes. And they're always enjoyable to watch, but you just realize you you should settle into your chair and, and just realize it gets more complicated as it goes along. What do you think, Marie?
1: I agree with everything that you said. And I think it's very hard when you're doing your own life story to edit it down. You know, that's just a very you like everything mattered. You know, it's like excising a story from your own life. Now, Seth Rogen said that every time he would do a scene that was really emotional, uh, Steven Spielberg would be very choked up and he would ask him, Is this, you know, like what really happened? And he said, Yes, Seth Rogen said. of the time so I think he was really trying to recreate the past and trying to be accurate about it but it's very vulnerable and my question watching it was wow I wonder what his family thought about him doing this and it turns out I was reading up about it and they were you know hounding him for years when are you going to write when are you going to do a movie about our family when are you going to do our story and he decided to do it while we were all in COVID-19 lockdown so I guess it's one of those times, you know, you go into yourself, you know, you start ruminating, you start writing, and then you come up with something like The Fablements. And I think it's interesting how it, it does do that sort of coming of age story where, you know, at what point do you start seeing your parents as, you know, individuals and human beings and not just your parents? And that's done, I think, very deftly. And I will say, yes, you need to hang in there all the way till the end, if only to see David Lynch play John Ford.
0: It's one of the most striking bits of casting I've seen in a long, long time. And like a lot of people, when I went to see the film, I didn't know who would be playing John Ford. They sort of kept that under wraps. And in fact, the early reviews kept the secret too. The fact that of, of all the likely suspects, you would not be putting forward that name, but he's terrific, actually. And for any movie buff, it's an absolute must see, not just the film itself, because Spielberg's such an important filmmaker, but the scenes that Marie is alluding to, because as his professional career begins, in Los Angeles, he as a very young filmmaker still working in television, has a chance to meet the great John Ford. Everything about that scene is letter perfect. Not just the performance as John Ford, but the posters on the wall, the moment at which Sammy Sam doesn't initially realize which famous director he's about to meet, but the moment he realizes that, oh my goodness, this is something that will be excerpted in any future autobiographical you know, treatment of the Spielberg has or any kind of documentary about him. It's one of those moments. And certainly like it, you know, if you were teaching a course we wanted to talk about John Ford, it isn't the kind of scene you'd want to sort of lift out and show to your students, don't you think, Marie? It's, it's one of those just ideal 10 minute segments.
1: It is absolutely, as like you said, it's it is pitch perfect. And apparently, they got David Lynch to agree to do it by promising him that there would be Cheetos on set. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I also like the fact that you know the he he gives them some advice by pointing things out in some paintings. And you know, David Lynch is is a painter, so it was I don't know, just nice on so many levels that that particular scene. Also, it's just shocking, you know, to see wow, what would it be like to be a young filmmaker? You're not Steven Spielberg yet. You're just a young guy who has something to try to uh, pursue. And you meet John Ford.
0: Well, you know what, John Ford enjoyed being difficult. I remember I was talking once with Peter Bogdanovich who had made a documentary film about John Ford and had written about him extensively. And he said, you know what he said, John Ford enjoyed being difficult. He liked to cuss, he liked to be ornery. And then there'd be like a twinkle in the eye. And so he knew he was being an SOB and he was having fun with it, whether on the set or off the set. And David Lynch perfectly captures that because this really impressionable, really young, nascent filmmaker is going into the office of a god, basically. And the god knows he's a god. and and he's making the most of his power. And he asks some really like borderline rude questions and he says some kind of nasty things, but you can see this little crinkle in the eye and a slight smile. And it's his way of, of, of initiating you. Like, you gotta be tough to be a filmmaker, right? So I'm just gonna throw it at you. And again, you know, you need to hear that at a certain point. And so Ford was not going to sugarcoat anything. And it's really delightful that way. You know what, Marie, let's pivot on that to the sense that this really isn't, among other things, not surprisingly, a movie movie. It's Steven Spielberg becoming Steven Spielberg. And that that John Ford reference late in the film is not the first time we've had reminders of such things. One that I really relished for various reasons is... When, uh, as a very young person, you know, he's being taken to the movies by his parents. And we'll talk more about the parents as we go along. But they're taken to the movies. And what do they go to see? What's, like, most filmmakers will say there's, like, the pivotal moment. There's the film you see as a kid where you realize movies are... You know, great entertainment, but gosh, maybe I could be a filmmaker. And for Steven Spielberg, as he's mentioned on many occasions, it was Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth in 1952. His parents take him, the kid is wide eyed with wonder, particularly at the end of the film when there's a big train wreck. And so what does he do? He goes home, he has his model train set, and he wants to have he wants to have explosive accidents with the trains. He's and then he wants to make little movies about them. And that's how it does begin. One of the ironies there, and I'm not the first one to point this out, is that the greatest show on earth, bear in mind, it's C.B. DeMille, Mr. Hollywood. It wins the Oscar for Best Picture in 1952. I'll tell you what, watch it now or try watching it. I don't want to say it's unwatchable, but it's not the greatest show on earth. I call it like the most mediocre show on earth. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, Singing in the Rain came out the same year. Shouldn't that have won? In the latest sight and sound poll, Singing in the Rain is number 10. Think about that. Singing in the Rain is number 10 in all time greatest movies. You will not find the greatest show on earth anywhere in that top 100 at all. But, you know what? And what I find amusing, and, and at a certain point, I'm not even joking about this when you're at that right age and you see a certain movie, it's the one that does it for you. And it doesn't have to be a certified all-time classic like Singing in the Rain. It could be the greatest show on earth. You're a kid. And at that age, it's all a world of wonder, isn't it? And that's the film that does it for you, particularly seeing it like in a movie palace, you know, with a huge screen and a cast of thousands and all of that. So whether the movie itself holds up or not is subject to debate. But one thing you do see in a film like greatest show on earth is that Steven Spielberg loved Spectacle, And when you think about his all-out adventure films, like I've recently been re-watching some of the Indiana Jones films like that, you know, they're just having fun with it, that the whole movie's like a theme park ride. It's from one adventure to the next. And you see, that's the entertainer side of Spielberg. The more reflective side that I alluded to earlier, and that Marie's also mentioned, is that self-examination, that kind of nostalgia for one's own upbringing and, and so on. There you see the more personal films, the more heartfelt films, could be Empire of the Sun, it, it could be Shin list it could be uh, the fablemans where you really are making a, a more personal project and the fableman's will not be one of his big box office films it's being treated more as, as a sort of showcase film it's it's going to open a little wider as, as the holidays are upon us but it's not meant to be you know a film playing in every single theater complex and for you know a huge audience it's it's really I think for people who love Spielberg who want to see a more personal film it's not one of his great big, entertainments. Uh, How do you feel about that, Marie? Because it seems to me you can kind of like divide his work into those two bodies, like the the all-out entertainments and the other more serious films, which may or may not have larger audiences, but they're really not made to go for the box office specifically.
1: Yeah, I think you've hit upon something there. This is sort of an outlier in, in his body of work. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about the authenticity, how well that was done. What they did was they actually allowed the cast to view home movies. So they could get a sense for, you know, the characters they were trying to portray, which is that not absolutely a brilliant way to go about it. And I, I think that that really paid off because I found all of the characters interesting, including his sisters who he put into his movies. I thought they, were, they had really nice, small roles that added to the whole. And of course, we're going to have to talk about Michelle Williams because I honestly think she walked off with the movie. Mike, what do you think?
0: Well, you know what? Let's talk about the parents, because that's what it all comes down. To. That's really at the heart of the film, really, his relationship with his parents. And from having read about Spielberg over the years, I knew that he was extremely close to his mother, more so than to his father. And the film really delivers that with a wallop. And, and I'm saying that as a compliment, that it really shows the reasons why. Michelle Williams gives a terrific performance as Mitzi, the mother. She has aspirations to play classical piano, which is a little difficult when you still have your fingernails so long and you're being a proper 50s and 60s housewife. And again, the film has some fun with that. Like, she'll sit down to play and she's like, technically shown to be a good performer, and yet the the nails are clattering across the keys and the family kind of teases her about that. But she's sort of in that situation of, well, this is what a woman of her generation is expected to look like and dress like. And yes, she wants the long lacquered nails, but try playing the piano sometimes that way. And she's pent up with frustration. She's not gonna have the all out musical career she wants. She does have this creative impulse. She has a reckless quality. And I, I say that actually as a compliment too. She's like a free spirit. But she's trapped in a 50s environment, 50s into the 60s. And so she even like, in terms of reckless behavior, like imagine if a natural disaster were impending, you would want to take your children to shelter. (laughs) What does she do? There's a tornado coming their way. She throws the kids in the car and she becomes a tornado chaser. Now it's one thing to be a tornado chaser as an adult. This is for whatever reason, what you want to do, but would you put your children in the back seat and say, there it is, let's head towards it, not away from it, towards it. And her life is full of things like that. And you know what, the film has some fun with it, but ultimately it's enough to make you tear up because you, you realize just how frustrated she is that she's not fully expressing herself and she's not quite sure what she wants but ultimately deciding what she wants is not within her marriage. The husband, Bert, is played by Paul Dano. He's an engineer. He's technically very accomplished at his work. But that has a a downside because he's so good at the the research work he does, the family will be moving like from New Jersey to to Phoenix, Arizona, Los Angeles, and it's his job that pushes him that way. So imagine the frustration she feels like they've settled into a household and the husband comes home like, honey, how was your day? Oh, guess what? I got a promotion. We have to move and some other city and be uprooted. So he's sort of guiding things that way. There's a lot of tension there within the household. And then furthering that is there is a family best friend, we'll call him, who may become more than a best friend to Mitzi. And that's where the film, I think, becomes really fascinating. And that's where I think that self-reflective, contemplative quality that I've mentioned for Steven Spielberg really comes to the fore. I think he really is able to examine how a marriage can implode like that for the reasons we've been talking about. And then the introduction of his family friend who ostensibly is the friend of the father, but may become you know, more than a friend to the mother. When you watch those scenes, this goes back to what Marie was saying about how well cast it is in every role. You look at every detail, every nuance, every around like a dinner table, the glances exchanged, this and that. And that's where the young Sammy starts to notice things. And that scene where as a young filmmaker, he's actually looking at footage, you know, of like a family picnic, thinking, no, wait a minute, she seems awfully close to this friend. And it's one of the great scenes in all of Spielberg, because it's like a masterclass in filmmaking in terms of how you frame that shot, how you show his reactions, how you go from the teen actor to the footage he's looking at. It's all coming together there in terms of examining his early family life, and then as a filmmaker, turning it to advantage. You know, artists, which goes beyond just filmmakers, artists are always exploiting their own life stories right and this is where he as a creative artist is starting to do that very thing he's on his way he's on the path
1: i like that word reflection because it's it's i think that really describes one of the qualities i really like about this movie because i thought the the same thing about the tornado like maybe you go racing after but who puts their kids in the car but (laughs) i think that sort of underscored her recklessness And the funness of her, you know, I mean, it's kind of exciting to have a mom who says, hey, let's go check out the tornado. And when they ask her if they're going to be safe, she says, of course, I'm your mother. But then she has this moment of realization. That's why I think reflection is a great word to describe it, where she suddenly realizes, wait, what am I doing? I thought it was a great metaphor for her sort of floundering and sort of chasing tornadoes and then sort of stepping back like, wait, what am I doing? So I thought that was a a brilliant moment of why she was a very exciting parent, but also, you know, like any person, especially impulsive people, you know, there are those moments where you suddenly catch yourself and start asking yourself why you are doing the things that you're doing. Also, I thought that it was clever to show the downside of keeping footage of events because when you can go back and stop them and replay them, Yeah, you could see things you didn't see the first time around when you were in the moment. So, Mike, before we move on to the next movie, I wanted to make sure I asked you how you thought this stacked up to something like Roma, and if you think this is going to be a contender for the Academy Awards.
0: Well, you know, I usually hesitate to look into that crystal ball because I don't like to be wrong. (laughs) But this is a case where I'll say with Steven Spielberg, you can just assume he'll get nominations in major categories here. Michelle Williams, I think definitely will be be nominated. The film itself is likely to get quite a few nominations, whether it wins or not, who knows. But, you know, the the thing is, this is a film he wanted to make. I mean, this is something he's doing because he wants to do it. And so honestly, whether it cleans up at the Oscars or not, it certainly goes on the short list of films that you have to talk about when you talk about his career. You know what I mean? You you can you can talk about the great entertainments. You can then talk about more personal films. This is on the personal side. And it's just so well made and so heartfelt that it's just an integral part of any discussion, I would say, of, of Steven Spielberg.
1: Well, let's move on to the spoiler alert and I'm going to open by saying that I thought this was the movie that Bros wanted to be. It's a dramedy, but it's got a lot of it's got a lot of funny moments in it based on its true story about a romance between two guys which, you know, spoiler alert, ends, you know, in a sad sad way. Mike, what did you think about Spoiler Alert?
0: Well, I had very mixed feelings about it. And of course, we've all been joking about all the spoiler alerts within spoiler alert. But just based on the promotion for the film and and what you know from the very first scene of the film, scenes of the film, you know, it's going to be cancer-themed in in a lot of ways. And emotionally, that works really well. Because after all, you have a a romance, and then one of the partners is going to have cancer, and then the film is tracking that. And it really, really does get to you in that respect. Here's where I had mixed feelings about it, and this is where I have to go into a little more detail. The protagonist, or one of the two protagonists, uh, Michael Osiello, this is very much based on real life. It's a memoir, essentially. And he's played by Jim Parsons. And of course, Parsons is best known for those 12 seasons on Big Bang Theory. So you think of TV sitcoms. Well, wouldn't you know this character within the film, Michael is a writer for TV Guide. And he oftentimes is writing about, guess what? Family sitcoms. And he's sort of trapped in a sort of perpetual adolescence. Like he has this hobby of collecting Smurf figures, like filling the apartment and all these ways in which he's sort of the child man, if you will. He stayed within that sitcom world. And as he tells his life story and his romance with Kit, played by uh, Ben Aldridge, as he tells that story, Michael periodically fantasizes like family sitcoms that would somehow play off of his own reality. And and so, you know, you see his upbringing as as to this fantasized family sitcom and how that plays out that way. So that's all. It's oftentimes very funny that way. The character is fully realized in that respect. Here's where I had some reservations about it. Because it so much involves uh, what I call a sitcom sensibility, I don't think the film ever entirely shakes that off. So even in some of the later scenes where, again, the the cancer um, themes, they they really do emotionally get to you. But by the same token, Jim Parsons, while he's convincing, in many of those scenes, I still feel like he's somehow playing in a sitcom. I still didn't feel like entirely persuaded by the performance and by the dynamics of it. And it ultimately seemed kind of contrived that way. So again, much of that cancer narrative did seem in some ways overly formulaic even in terms of how that's going to go. For me, the saving grace in some ways uh, would have been the performances by some of the the secondary characters, specifically uh, Kit, the, the partner's parents, played by Sally Field and Bill Irwin. You know, I've interviewed both of them over the years. I admire their careers tremendously. And although they don't have a lot of screen time here, they make the most of it. It's one of the great late, I don't want to say late career because Sally Field hopefully has a lot of movies ahead of her, but it's one of the great recent Sally Field performances. And Bill Irwin is always reliable in whatever he does. But when you watch the dexterity of their performances, because They are parents who first of all have to come to terms with the sexuality of their son. He's been closeted and and they only find out very late (laughs) in the game as as to his identity. And the way that's handled in the film is really beautifully realized. It's like a family dinner table and we all know what, what the narrative would be there. So the camera cuts outside of the house and you see it through the window, essentially in pantomime. A reminder that Bill Irwin is one of our great physical comedians in in the Buster Keaton mode of of a silent comedian. And to show people just through the gestures and what we know the words would be is really, I thought a a brilliant stroke of filmmaking there as to how to have that coming out scene, basically to the parents. But what I also admired so much was then how the parents reacted to it. They kind of take it in stride like, geez, is that it? Why don't you tell us sooner? You know, it's just Sally Fields character. You know, I called you and say, honey, what's new? And you couldn't tell me that's what's new. You know, it's like so true to life that way and just so well-realized, and that's a case where there's a lot of nuance in the performances by Sally Field and Bill Irwin, which for me really gave a great depth, a great richness to the later scenes in the film. Now, the two principal actors, Ben Aldridge and and, um, Jim Parsons, they're fine, they're good there, but again, that reservation I had where sometimes, particularly with the Parsons character, it never entirely shakes off what I call that sort of sitcom mode, And, and I think the film's a little glib that way, even more than it intends to be, what do you think of that, Marie? Because what I'm raising is essentially an issue of tone. What should the tone be for a film like this?
1: I thought the sitcom bit was funny the first time, but every time they went back to it, I cringed a little bit because I didn't really think it brought the story forward in any original or fun way. I will say what I did think, I the reason I liked things about the film was probably because of director Michael Showalter, who also did The Big Sick, and which I also really liked. And in both movies, have an ill major character with their, the person who is their, you know, they're in a relationship with is not knowing what's going to happen. Are they going to make it? Or are they not going to make it? And, you know, I love Sally Field in this movie, but there's Holly Hunter plays a very similar kind of character in The Big Sick, the stalwart mother, you know, with the salty tongue and funny, quips and surprising moments of gentleness. I thought that that the similarities between the two movies made me think that what I was really responding to was the way Michael Showalter does a movie. What do you think, Mike?
0: You have actually set me up for what I wanted to really say. <laughs> okay. It's, no, I mean, because spoiler alert has been described as a cancer comedy. We have to you know be careful how we describe that, but it has been called a cancer comedy. Michael Showalter's previous film uh, the Big Sick has been called a, a coma comedy, and well, one other critic—this is not original to me. One other critic was sort of carping that the director Michael Showalter says, you know, he made the very points Marie just made about the similarities between the two movies, and said, you know what? Whenever you go to see a Michael Showalter movie from now on, you'll wonder at what point will the hospital bed appear, <laughs> and, and in some ways it becomes like too predictable, kind of like knee-jerk, like okay, this is the the big reveal in terms of an illness or you know wheel on the bed. Do we still have the bed from the previous movie. Wheel it on. Maria, I know that's what you're getting at, right? It just seems at a certain point, it's like, okay, it's too predictable. It's sort of pulling the chain that way in a way it's been yanked before. Is that what you're getting at?
1: Yes. Yes, but I, I liked the way he was jerking the chain. I enjoyed both of those movies. And the things that I'm pointing out are the things that are similar. The mom character being so relatable and funny and yet not uh, typical, atypical. And the the treatment of you know that situation you're in when somebody is in dire jeopardy and you know you're sort of whipsawed by confusion and some of the script was absolutely laugh out loud funny in both movies
0: uh, you know, I agree with you, but sometimes the dialogue in Spoiler Alert is a bit on the nose in the sense that there's some clunky dialogue as well, and that's a problem. With exposition, like you, you have a, these these setups in terms of whether it's coming out to one's parents or, or whether it's the, the two partners dealing with the cancer and so on. Sometimes the dialogue was funny, like Laugh Out Loud funny. Sometimes there's just kind of clunky, almost clunky. The way Marie, when she mentioned like that that fantasized family sitcom that he goes to. It's very funny the first few times, right? But you're right, after a while, it's like, okay, it's not really furthering anymore, it's like more of the same. Sometimes some of the dialogue outside of that in the present day real moments also has that quality of being too much like a formulaic sitcom, right? So the dialogue you expect people to say in a film like that. And I don't think Michael Showalter has been able to entirely break out of that or through that. Yeah,
1: which is why I agree with you that the use of the, you know, the framing device sort of of the sitcom within the movie was I think a mistake because you know the canned laughter for one thing, which makes everything seem forced, and the jokes that are you know nobody really talks like that, and nobody is always you know fast with a return quip it it made it seem trite in a way because you don't you don't really want to watch a sitcom, you want to watch a good movie you want yes, to watch right, a sitcom you'd stay home and watch TV.
0: Yeah, you have this trite sitcom, but it's up against real-life tragedy, real-life illness, and all the serious issues, and it doesn't always mesh in this film. Sometimes I feel like the film itself is kind of unbalanced by that.
1: Yep, I totally agree, Mike. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com, and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies.
0: See you then.